Well, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to the book of Leviticus. We, we ended Exodus last week, and we're beginning to enter into the, the weird and the wonderful Leviticus. But Mark's going to unpack what that looks like for us and how we apply this today in our lives. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect his mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn your, to idols or make God of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because he has desecrated what is holy to the Lord. That person must be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and for the alien. I am the Lord your God. Praise the Lord. Mark, can you come up here? We're very fortunate that we had Cheryl and Chelsea. Thank you for, for sharing that wonderful ministry. But uh, when we heard that they were coming, I thought, my goodness, we got Mark Buchanan as well. Let's get him preaching. So Mark, thank you for coming. We're really, it's lovely to meet you. And it's fantastic to have you preaching with us this morning. Uh, that's the gift of having guest speakers. You can give them difficult passages to preach on, right? So... <laughs> Appreciate yeah. it. Well, I'm, I'm very honored. Thanks, Simon. But um, Mark used to be a pastor many moons ago. And Mark, can you just uh, share a little bit about how many years ago were you here? I was here from 1995 to 2013. So 18 years. And uh, I, I want to th- so many don't know me, but some do. You knew that I, in a sense, grew up here. <laughs> You got a very callow, very immature pastor in 1995. You sent away somebody who had made some improvement. And I owe that to you, so thank you. Well, we had a 40th anniversary just at the end of August. And your, we had pictures from okay. the last 40 years. You were there. So you and Cheryl, uh, yeah, you had long flowing hair. It was lovely, right? <laughs> it was good. So, yeah, we've seen your photographs anyhow. Yeah, so. I, I, I miss that hair. But uh, <laughs> I'm trying to thank you. Well, let me pray for Mark, yeah, and then we'll dive into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, we are able to celebrate all of these years here um, on Zuhalem Road as, as New Life Church. 
church. We thank you that you uh, blessed Mark in those years that he ministered here, and you continue to bless Mark and Cheryl in what they are doing now, Lord, teaching and nurturing and mentoring so many people, Lord, at, at university and, and with the indigenous. Uh, and so, Lord, we, we just pray that you continue to bless them uh, in, in, that, in, in all their service to you and to your kingdom. And I pray this morning that you continue to fill Mark with your Holy Spirit as he unpacks your word. Uh, and give us open hearts and minds and ears to uh, what you have to say to us this morning. May we continue to grow in our holiness in all that we do, Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen. Thank thanks, you. Lord. Bless you. Thank you. And thanks for the kind welcome here this morning. It really was new life that we owe new story to. In 2004, I took a trip to the States and met a pastor who challenged me. Are you on your knees, he said, asking God for the people that have been most forgotten in your community? And I was shattered because I hadn't been on my knees. And I realized the people in this valley who had been most forgotten by the church were the Cowichan people. And some of you were part of that journey that uh, we stumbled along, and out of that was birthed um, uh, Kidstown on the road, and uh, a whole bunch of stuff came out of that. But what happened to Cheryl and I is something got very deep into us that God wouldn't let us go on. And, and now uh, it's given birth to New Story community. So thank you. Uh, the, the biggest change here, Simon, since I left 10 years ago, is you finally got the drummer in a cage. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I tried so hard. And uh, I, I don't know what, you, you put a special kind of food in there and they... I could never figure that out, so that's very good to be back. Well, who sticks the guest preacher with Leviticus? I'll do my best. I was born in 1960, but that means I grew up in the 70s. And that means, and I not a lick of, of faith, of religion, I didn't come to faith until I was 21. So that means I was deeply, deeply, deeply shaped by 70s music. In fact, so deeply shaped that you could play virtually anything of a soundtrack from the 70s and I could sing along. And one of the songs that had a formative impact and still does because I Ride Motorcycle is Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild. You know, you know that song. <laughs> I mean, even if you say you disdain secular rock music, you like that song. Born to be wild. And you just want to get on a motorcycle when you hear that. If I had to give a one-phrase description of discipleship, of what Jesus is doing, 
It would be we're reborn to be holy. We might be born to be wild. <laughs> Megan, we're reborn to be holy. I don't think we think enough about that, and I actually do um, appreciate the work that I had to do on behalf of getting into this Leviticus text. That I, it, I, the New Testament has a lot to say about what, what it means to be a holy people. Um, I might need your help here, Owen. I'm going to try this. Uh-oh. Where do I, where do I point it? Uh, this is First Peter, and you read this at the beginning, Simon. That it, it cites the passage in Leviticus. Three times in Leviticus we're told, God says, be holy because I am holy. But Peter pulls that up. In fact, Peter is one of the ones who most develops this idea of what it is to be holy. And so he actually says the deep calling on our life is to be a holy people. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, and he's quoting Leviticus 19.1, be holy because I am holy. You're calling. If you ever wondered, John McWilliam, what your calling is, and I know you have because we've had lots of conversations about this. At the root, at the foundation, overarching everything you're called is your call to be holy. It's a deep calling on your life. Peter goes on. Uh-oh, what did I do? There we go. I told you, uh, Owen, I was, gonna, I was just going to mess this part up. Not only is your calling, your deep calling to be holy, your deep identity is to be holy. This is Peter again, just a few verses on. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. God's special possession, or I like the King James, a peculiar people. Uh, some of you are so weird. You are a peculiar people. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people. You didn't really have an identity. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So deep calling is to be holy. Your deep identity is to be holy. The world's deep longing is for you to be holy. This is Peter again, just a few verses on. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is, this is crazy that actually what Peter is saying is that even though you might have co-workers and neighbors that just disdain you, one of those Christian people. The longing of their heart is actually that you would somehow live out the, the goodness of God, the joy of God, the beauty of God, that one day God will come back and say, oh my goodness, they will say, 
it was my neighbor who actually gave me a glimpse of this. My holy neighbor. <laughs> and therefore, and this is moving over to Hebrews, if the deep call on our life is to be holy, if the deep identity of our lives is holiness, if the longing in the heart of the coworker or neighbor who's pagan, doesn't really acknowledge God, is that you would be holy. We find in Hebrews that the deep work of Jesus is to make us holy. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those, that's us, who are, whole, are made holy are of, the same, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Deep call, deep identity, longing, deep longing of your neighbor's heart, and the deep work of Jesus. It's no wonder that at the beginning of Leviticus 19, God says, I'm the Lord your God, and I want you to say this to the entire assembly. In other words, this is not just for the priests. This is not just for the pastors. This is not just for the elders. This is for y'all. I want you to say to the entire congregation, where's Peter DeLonge? Where did you end up sitting, Peter? Peter DeLonge, way at the back. I, you're such a Baptist. What are you doing way back there? Uh, Peter DeLonge, the, the, the word of the Lord to you is be holy. This is for everyone in the room. And as we saw, Peter pulls it all the way forward. And we can find similar things. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Paul says, be imitators of God. We don't get an escape clause. We don't get an exemption clause on this one. It's for all the congregation. One of my favorite quotes by a poet about 100 years ago by the name of Leon Bloy. And Bloy said this. I had it written down somewhere. Oh, here it is. The only real sadness, the only real failure, the only real tragedy in life is not to become a saint, to not be holy. Now, in order to believe this, Annette, for you to actually believe this, you might have to do a little uh, dismantling of some of the defaults that you might carry around, or maybe I'm just imposing my own defaults onto you, about holiness. I don't know about you, Dwight, but I tend to think of holiness as um, a narrowness, a priggishness, an uptightness, a judginess. Is that a word? And, and the reason we do is that the heirs of Leviticus show up in the New Testament around Jesus, Pharisees, teachers of the law, all those sort of people, Curtis, and, and you remember, we read those, and you don't get a great, I mean, they, they, they were masters of holiness. 
They prided themselves, that's maybe a key word, they prided themselves on being holy. But you don't want to be one, do you? You think about, Lori, you think about those people and they just, the default that they create for me anyhow is that holiness is about this rigidity, this brittleness, this harumphing, this I would suggest that actually the way holiness works, as far back as Leviticus, but it got lost along the way and certainly comes back roaring in the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, and I'll take a little journey, brief journey on that in a moment, is that Jesus understands holiness to be the most attractive, subversive, and transformative power on the earth. Most attractive, most subversive, it turned things on its head. And most transformative, we get changed inside out. <laughs> and no wonder your neighbors actually have a deep longing for you to be holy. That they would have some sense of the living God in the neighborhood most subversive, most attractive, most transformative power on earth. How did that work? We actually track, as we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament, what I think is the biggest revolution, the biggest kind of theological, spiritual earthquake that's ever happened that I sometimes wonder if the church noticed. <laughs> something happens with holiness that doesn't squelch it, that doesn't say we've done with that, but actually does something that makes it this power that exists on earth that is going to actually, if we got hold of this, if we actually let this flow through us, it would be the game changer for us and for the neighborhood. And I think almost it's one of the things that the evil one wants to blind our eyes to this reality, this revolution that happens with Jesus Christ. So let me take you on a brief theological journey around that. It all... Uh, is based on something that Paul says, and I, I forget to bring my Bible. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but uh, Romans 10.4, Paul says that Jesus Christ is, and it's translated differently by different, different um, versions. Sometimes it says Jesus is the end of the law. Sometimes it says Jesus is a fulfillment of the law. Sometimes it says it is, he is a consummation of the law. What does it mean that Jesus is the end or the fulfillment or the consummation of the law? Well, this is a, a massive question that I don't have time to unpack all of what he means by Jesus is that. But everything actually rides on what it means. Jesus is the end of the law or the fulfillment of the law or the consummation of the law. Well, one thing it means is there are certain laws that 
God gave to the people way back in the desert as they're passing through among all the pagan nations, and he really wanted a distinctiveness. Some of it had to do with hygienic things, dietary things that would protect the people from various stuff that they might pick up, etc. But it means that in some ways Jesus does abolish certain parts of the law. And you should be happy about that. That means you can have bacon and shrimp. Hallelujah. But there's other parts that we say, well, did Jesus abolish the law against not stealing or committing adultery <laughs> or having idols? And we say no. You see, the beauty of this word, Jesus is the end of the law or the fulfillment or the consummation, is it captures both sense that there's certain laws, and again, I'm not going to get into the, all the weeds on this, but there's certain laws that Jesus says you can have bacon now. There's other laws that Jesus says, you've had a hard time doing this, haven't you? This has been tough. To not let covetousness into your heart. That has been tough, tough. I'm going to fulfill the law in this way for you. I'm going to actually infuse you with my own life so deeply, so completely that you now are going to have the power and the motivation to do that which... My people throughout the ages just couldn't do. How Jesus does that is by actually breathing the Holy Spirit onto us, into us. The very life that, according to the Gospels, that raised, or according to the Apostle Paul, raised Christ from the dead is now at work in you. <laughs> receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, and that spirit comes rushing into us. Now we have, to, we have to open ourselves and open ourselves and be filled and filled and filled with this Holy Spirit. We have to wake each day to a, a fresh delight and acceptance and invitation and yes, God, to the work of the Holy Spirit. But that spirit rushes in. And now here's what happens is in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit... Uh, yeah, I'm going to do that one in a minute. I just, I think I'll do Bryson near the end. Uh, so if you could just go back to the little th cool thing. Yeah, thanks, Owen. I'm so sorry, Owen. I just, I'm, I get confused up here myself about where I am in my notes. In the Old Testament, if you think about the, the Holy Spirit's presence, but the Holy Spirit is what I would call an elitist visitor. Uh, he comes on some people for a little bit. So think about Samson. Samson, there's Samson, and he's kind of, you know, a bunch of, fair, uh, bunch, um, what do you call this? Philistines are coming at him, and he's like in trouble. There's a thousand, there's one of him. And it says, a spirit fell upon him, and suddenly he picks up a donkey's jawbone, and he slays them all. So in the Old Testament, what we see is the spirit of God is an elitist visitor that comes on special people, in an emergency usually, and empowers them to do mighty feats, usually something to do with killing people. Jesus comes 
lives this life of perfect obedience, perfect faithfulness, filled, we're told by Luke, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus then, as he prepares his disciples, says, I am going to now give my spirit and put it in you, and this very spirit will come upon. And, and, and then in the book of Acts, we find out that the spirit comes upon all flesh, young and old, female and female, no respecter of, it's just all people who say yes. But it, the spirit goes from an elitist visitor on special people to empower them for mighty deeds, mighty feats, to what I call a resident Democrat. He comes on all who ask, <laughs> and he lives in them forever. And now the Spirit empowers us not toward these mighty feats, but for our whole lives to be conformed to Jesus. <laughs> now the difference that makes and this is where we get to the revolution. This has all happened. I just narrated what most of you know fairly well and probably could have done a better job of describing than I just did. But here's where the revolution happens. When you go back to the book of Leviticus and you think, how did they understand holiness? It mostly was understood, well, actually exclusively understood as avoidance. If you had to put a a sign over everything around being holy. It may mostly, there's a, some exceptions, and we'll look at some in a moment. Mostly holiness was don't touch. Don't touch that. In the New Testament, holiness is mostly about bringing the presence of God into the places where people need healing, they need wholeness, they need hope. I mean, uh, if, 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 I'm just going to let you do this one. Can you find that Mark passage? There we go. This story narrates it better than just about anything, but you can find this all through the Gospels. This is Jesus. Says when he crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there, Jesus and disciples. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now go over to the next. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, these are the people trained in the old ways of the law, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, you do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So I want you to hold on to one word. It's part, it's the third, um, third from, the, from the bottom, that word marketplace. The Pharisees in the marketplace. Could you go back, Owen, to the earlier one? Um, this is Jesus, and look at the word also on the third from the bottom. Um, bottom, 
Jesus goes into the marketplace. Here's what I want you to picture. Somebody who has an ethic of avoidance that the whole, the whole way you fulfill holiness is by just not touching. And they go into the marketplace and they are some of the most uptight people you ever did see. I mean, this is, this is even, you know, pre-COVID, but they're still wearing masks and they're putting hand sanitizers on everything they touch. And they just, they're very uptight. Jesus goes into the marketplace and actually people are running to him with all those who, according to the book of Leviticus, Jesus shouldn't touch. And what does he do? Have at me. (laughs) I bless you, I bless you, I bless you. Here's the thing, this is the revolution. Sorry it took me so long to get here. In the book of Leviticus, here's what holiness is. Don't touch, stay away, avoid, avoid. Um, Ooh, I touched that. And so here's the big word in Leviticus is there's either clean or unclean. Clean or unclean. You try to maintain cleanliness, um, purity, uh, ritual cleanliness. If you touch something, and here's the deal, if the clean, a clean thing comes and touches an unclean thing, do you remember what happens in Leviticus? They both become, they both become unclean. <laughs> like it can't work the other way in Leviticus. You have to go around and protect yourself from all the nasty, dirty places and things and everything, people and all that. You, you have to walk in this don't touch, avoid. Because if clean and unclean touch, they both become unclean. Here's the revolution that I wish, I wish, I wish we'd all catch up with. Because of Jesus and the way he lives and the spirit that now exists in us, here comes Jesus and one follower of Jesus. (laughs) Clean, clean, walking in this anointing and this unction. And here's something very unclean. And in the ministry of Jesus, they touch and they both become clean. When will we believe this? When will we believe it? Greater is he that is in you than anything out there. I said holiness is the most attractive, the most subversive, and the most transformative power ever loosed upon the earth. And it really has to do that we, as a people of God, by the breath of Christ, by the, by the sacrifice, and the grace, and the mercy, and the outpouring, actually have his life in us. <laughs> and this is the hope of glory. This is what your neighbors are longing to catch a glimpse of. Very quickly, I'm almost done. There's a few things that the text in Leviticus talks about that are commanded as part of the life of holiness. 
I think that we could see those things as actually practices to open ourselves to the work of the Spirit that we might become holy as he is holy. So there's just a very few. Uh, Honor your parents and keep the Sabbath. Now, what I would simply say is um, the foundational shape in relationship of your life is your relationship with your parents. (laughs) And some of you, that's been a very difficult, some, it's been lovely and blessed, but here's the thing, that every relationship that you have will somehow take its cue from what you've been able to do in terms of working out the relationship with your mom and dad. It, as you sort of press into sort of healing that or forgiving or whatever you need to do, all your relationships will take, take a cue from that. And Sabbath, some of you just need more sleep. You just be really better neighbors if you just got more sleep. Talks about don't have idols, and this is not a good idea. So what idolatry fundamentally is, is trying to reduce God to a size I can manage. Talks about, these are the things that Simon read in Leviticus, um, this weird thing about, you know, don't let things after three, three days, you've got to get rid of them. It's world without refrigeration. But I think really underneath that passage is refuse scarcity thinking. This sense that I'm always running out and so I have to hoard. But the very last thing that it says, and I actually asked Simon if he could read the few verses. The gleaning law, when you glean your field or when you, when you go and you sort of take the, the harvest, make sure that you've left whatever's left behind for the poor. Here's one of the things that I really do think opens us to the holiness that God wants to continually breathe on us. Creative generosity toward the poor. It opens something in us. Creative generosity toward the poor. One of the, again, things we're deeply thankful to you for, New Life, is your very generous support of New Story Community It's a creative generosity toward people who haven't had all the benefits and all the advantages and all the um, all the breaks that you and I have had. Many of you and I, many of us have had. I told this story about 13 years ago here, and I'll end with it. Back in the waning days of the Tsardom in Russia, it was very dark. Things were falling apart. There's a lot of crime, a lot of, a lot of, um, it's dangerous to go out in the streets. And most Orthodox priests used their societal power to protect themselves from all of that. Except there was one man by the name of Father John Sergeyev. And every day he would put on his black robes, and he would go into the worst parts of St. Petersburg. 
And he'd find people who were lying in ditches and lying in gutters. And John Sergeyev, Father John Sergeyev would go up to them and he would um, gently, lovingly kneel down and he would put his big hand under their chins and lift their faces so that he could look directly into their eyes. And he would say this to people whose lives had just become shattered by alcohol or poverty or whatever, and he would lift them and he would look directly in their eyes and he'd say, this is beneath your dignity. You were created to house the glory of the living God. And everywhere he went, revival broke out. And I say to you, and you can come up uh, now, Megan. You were created to house the glory of the living God. To be holy because Jesus is holy. And what used to be a command is now a gift. Be holy. God, thank you for that gift of Holy Spirit, that gift of a life that you imparted to us that made you powerful, winsome, subversive, attractive people running to you. No wonder the neighbors, the deep longing of their heart is this. God, I pray for all of us that we would not live beneath our dignity. We were created to house the glory, the holiness of the living God. May it be so. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.